Hello, listeners. As an enhancement to your listening experience, I am now going to present these archive episodes unedited in their entirety, which includes all of my afterthoughts. So, continue listening after the outro music if you want to hear what I thought of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please support it by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel up? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 204 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 11, Lunar Module Pilot, Buzz Aldrin. I attended uh, public uh, schools in my hometown of Montclair, New Jersey. Uh, Received an appointment to the United States Military Academy at West Point. Uh, I was commissioned in the Air Force, flew in the Korean War for about six months sent over to Germany flying F-100 aircraft. In 1959, applied for admission into uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology to study uh, astronautics in greater depth, leading toward a Doctor of Science degree. As you heard, Buzz Aldrin was born in Mount Clare, New Jersey, to Edwin Eugene Aldrin, Sr., a career military man, Edwin Aldrin, Sr. was a colonel in the Air Force and an aviation pioneer who later became the commanding officer of the Newark Airport in New Jersey. Now I have a clip of Buzz describing his father and his hero, Jimmy Doolittle. My father was uh, uh, the contemporary of uh, Jimmy Doolittle and in World War II. He was the person that called back both of them into World War II. And Jimmy Doolittle trains right away to uh, take off from a carrier that would be close to Japan, and they would bomb Tokyo. And they did. And uh, it'd take off early, so a lot of them crashed in China or were in prison in Russia. But uh, Jimmy Doolittle became a real hero. and and somebody that uh, I looked up to. And when my father passed away, I spent a little bit more time visiting with him. And I just loved to tell him, because he was the first one to take off on the aircraft gear, and the airplanes were behind him. So he had the shortest. And I used to tell him, Jimmy, our rocket was taller 
than your takeoff roll was. <laughs> 360 feet is all he had to get airborne. Buzz Aldrin's mother, Marion, is of Scottish, Swedish, and German ancestry. After Buzz graduated from Montclair High School in 1946, Aldrin turned down a full scholarship offer from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and went to the United States Military Academy at West Point, New York. The nickname Buzz originated in childhood. The younger of his two elder sisters mispronounced brother as Buzzer, and this was shortened to Buzz. Aldrin made it his legal name in 1988. Regarding his personal life, Aldrin has been married three times. His first marriage was to Joan Archer, lasting from 1954 to 1974. Joan was the mother of his three children, James, Janice, and Andrew. His second marriage was to Beverly Zile, from 1975 to 1978. His third marriage was to Lois Driggs Cannon, and it lasted from 1988 to 2011. Buzz filed for divorce from her on June 15, 2011, in Los Angeles, citing irreconcilable differences. Buzz has one grandson, Jeffrey Schuess, born to his daughter Janice. From 1972 to 2014, Aldrin primarily resided in Los Angeles, California, and nearby places like Hidden Hills and Laguna Beach. In 2014, after his third divorce, Buzz sold his Westwood condominium. And as of 2016, Aldrin lives in Satellite Beach, Florida. Now let's move on to his military career. Aldrin graduated third in his class at West Point in 1951 with a Bachelor of Science degree in Mechanical Engineering. He was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the United States Air Force and served as a jet fighter pilot during the Korean War. He flew 66 combat missions in F-86 Sabres and shot down two MiG-15 aircrafts. The June 8, 1953 issue of Life magazine featured gun camera photos taken by Aldrin of one of the Soviet pilots ejecting from his damaged aircraft. After the war, Aldrin was assigned as an aerial gunnery instructor at Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada, and next was an aide to the dean of faculty at the United States Air Force Academy, which had recently begun operations in 1955. He flew F-100 Super Sabres as a flight commander at Bitburg Air Base, West Germany, in the 22nd Fighter Squadron. In 1963, Aldrin earned a Doctor of Science degree in Astronautics from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. His graduate thesis was line-of-sight guidance techniques for manned orbital rendezvous, the dedication of which read, quote, In hopes that this work 
may in some way contribute to their exploration of space, this is dedicated to the crew members of the country's present and future manned space programs. If only I could join them in their exciting endeavors. End quote. On completion of his doctorate, Buzz was assigned to the Gemini Target Office of the Air Force Space Division in Los Angeles before he was selected as an astronaut. His initial application to join the astronaut corps was rejected on the basis of having never been a test pilot. That prerequisite was lifted when he reapplied and was accepted in the third astronaut class. Aldrin was the first astronaut with a doctorate degree and became known as Dr. Rendezvous. The docking and rendezvous techniques he devised for spacecraft in Earth and lunar orbit became critical to the success of the Gemini and Apollo programs. Back at MIT, Aldrin had foreseen the importance of rendezvous to NASA's moon program. He knew that computers were being designed to help an astronaut fly a rendezvous, but what if the computers failed? Aldrin worked out techniques the pilot could use to take over and fly the final stages of rendezvous manually. Buzz would look back on these months working with mission planners as one of the most demanding and rewarding experiences of his life. After the deaths of the original Gemini 9 Prime crew, Elliot C. and Charles Bassett, Buzz and Jim Lovell were promoted to backup crew for the mission of Gemini 9. The main objective of the revised mission Gemini 9A was to rendezvous and dock with a target vehicle. But when this failed, Aldrin, who was in Houston, improvised an effective exercise for the spacecraft to rendezvous with a coordinate in space. Now let's move on to Gemini 12. Here's a clip of Buzz explaining how he was selected to fly on Gemini 12. When the training for Gemini was going on, some of the early missions, and I helped to train some of the people uh, along with the company, McDonnell Douglas, uh, for the first rendezvous. And I had uh, asked the top guy, uh, I said, you know, I'd like to fly on one of these rendezvous flights. He didn't say anything. But then as the assignment came out, um, I was going to back up a flight and then switch to prime crew, but there wasn't any mission. So I wasn't going to fly on Gemini. But then a tragedy uh, took the life of uh, my backdoor neighbor. And then we moved to replace him uh, on Gemini 9. And they had a crew for 10 and 11. So then Jim Lovell and I flew on Gemini 12. And that was a success. As you heard, Buzz was selected as pilot on Gemini 12, the last Gemini mission and the last chance to prove methods for extravehicular activity, EVA. Buzz set a record on that flight for EVA of five and one-half hours, and it was the first totally successful EVA.
During that mission, he also took the first space selfie, demonstrating that astronauts could work outside the spacecraft. Here's Buzz commenting on the Gemini 12 mission. Well, the mission was ultraviolet photographs of star uh, clusters at night. So uh, Jim Lovell, the commander, would uh, locate the spacecraft at the right position and then turn off the thrusters so they wouldn't fire. While I, with the hatch open, stood on the seat and operated this camera uh, in time exposures, five seconds, uh, 10 seconds, whatever it was, and the spacecraft might be drifting a little, but it would uh, catch this on ultraviolet. Now, between two different night passes, there was about 50 minutes of daylight coming back for the next. So we, we were real sightseers, at least I was, because I was standing in the open hatch and looking down at the parts of Texas and, uh, and other parts. And I was reminded there's cameras behind me. I, I, gee, I wonder if it could take a picture of me. <laughs> and it turned out pretty good. Yeah. I, I, I didn't check the lighting too well. Um, we'd have to either move the sun or we'd have to move a little in, in orbit to another location. But the other way around. We were experiencing difficulties. Some missions had to be uh, stopped or terminated early and we didn't get to do the spacewalking. Um, or there was a, 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 a situation where the person doing the spacewalk was getting uh, overheated and then he got frustrated in trying to do something. So there, there was not really a great success uh, Mike Collins um, on uh, Gemini 10 had a maneuvering gun. He opened the hatch and moved out uh, and, and did everything with the... Actually, it was a dead Agena. It, it was left up there from the previous mission. Uh, but when he got back in, he had to mess around with the uh, umbilical. Um, so we always had... Uh, some things going wrong. And uh, I had been training to do this uh, backpack maneuvering unit on, uh, on the last flight, Gemini 12, because it hadn't been flown on the flight nine uh, before. I was on the backup crew on that one. Uh, so this was the last chance to use this number one Air Force experiment. And uh, someone had suggested from around Baltimore, they did some uh, research and discovered that if you were neutrally buoyant uh, underwater, that uh, it behaved quite a bit like uh, being in space where you would be floating. So they had suggested 
And, and being a scuba diver from nine years previous, I, I felt, yeah, this, this, I think, will really work. Some of the other astronauts said, no, we don't think that's good. But they were wrong, and I was right. <laughs> and it did make things easier. But still, NASA was a little conservative, so they canceled the backpack maneuvering unit. And I was really disappointed because I would have loved to have separated and and fly around the spacecraft. NASA insisted on a hundred foot tether. Now all that would do is get in your way. Um, but those of you who've seen the movie Gravity, uh, George Clooney was flying around with a backpack. That's what I was going to do. <laughs> but, but it was cancer. So uh, I, I just did some very simple tasks. But it, uh, uh, there were three different successful EVAs, short, the, the long one taking a, a selfie, yeah. and then another one where uh, I was going to activate the backpack, and then there was a uh, garbage disposal EVA. We had some things that we needed to get rid of. So we opened up the hatch, and you would appreciate this. We were flying like this, and I had these, and I threw them up, straight up, not thinking that, oh, they're going to go up, and they're going to come back. <laughs> yeah. And one orbit laser. There, sure enough, <laughs> there they were. Yeah. They just passed buying it. Now I have a comment from Buzz on the differences in flying Gemini versus Apollo. Does anything prepare you for flying? Well, the, the Gemini spacecraft was really a pilot's spacecraft because you could maneuver it. You could go up down, forward, and you could do the maneuvers to bring spacecraft together. And uh, you could dock, as we did, with uh, our, another rocket that had a powerful engine, and then it could take you up to uh, 800 miles. Mm. So we did that on, on one mission. We were supposed to do it on Gemini 12, but something went wrong. We didn't do it. But... Uh, that spacecraft really was one that you could maneuver. Apollo was so programmed in its pathway that it just wasn't the sort of thing that you could move around. Everything was very well orchestrated uh, to be part of the total, total flight plan of getting there. Buzz came home elated from the successful flight of Gemini 12. But that was followed by a brief and minor bout with depression. Now I want to spend a moment on Apollo 9. Even though he was not on the flight, Buzz took great interest in the Apollo 9 mission, particularly the rendezvous of the command module and the lunar module. In the quietness of mission control, Buzz stood behind the Capcom's console and listened to the voices from space. 
Buzz felt at home in mission control. In some ways, he preferred the company of flight controllers to the other astronauts. He was never able to share the fighter-jock bravado of his test pilot colleagues. But, among Chris Craft's men, he felt the bond of common academic interest. With them, Aldrin had helped to work out the techniques for rendezvous now unfolding 155 miles up. The most important rendezvous to date. Its techniques had to work, and they did. Here's Buzz describing the political climate and the competitiveness between the Soviets and the United States from his unique perspective. Um, it was competitive um, because the at, at that time the, the Russians, in a sense, were maybe a little ahead of us. We had the Apollo fire, lost three crew members in Apollo 1, and so that slowed up our momentum. And then it, it looked as though the Russians had sent an unmanned spacecraft, and it was not a small spacecraft, that went around the moon and then landed uh, in uh, Aral Sea, I think. And they did that again, unmanned, and landed in the normal landing place where Russia lands. And we felt it was just a matter of time for them to put a cosmonaut in there and go around the moon first. So that's why we accelerated the second mission of Apollo. Apollo the first, first was just in Earth orbit, but the second mission would have been the first time anyone got on the big rocket. And uh, we decided to send them to the moon and more of a very bold maneuver. And it saved us probably about six months of development time because then we could follow that with uh, testing the lunar module in Earth orbit and uh, in lunar orbit. And then uh, we could perhaps land. Now I have a clip of Buzz explaining how he was selected to fly on Apollo 11. It began with the success of Gemini 12. On Gemini 12, yeah. and that was a success. So then I was in good position to uh, be selected to fly an Apollo mission. Yeah. So Neil and I were assigned to what eventually became Apollo 8, the first flight to orbit the moon. And that was really a wonderful flight to be on the backup group and, and to see all the training. And Neil and I worked pretty close together on that. And then the normal rotation would be after Apollo 8, there was a crew to Apollo 9 and 10. So we would fly on Apollo 11. And if everything worked out, we might be able to make the first attempted landing. And it all worked out pretty good. <laughs> of course, Buzz was assigned the lunar module pilot position on Apollo 11 and made the first lunar landing with Commander Neil Armstrong on July 20, 1969. The next day, 
Aldrin became the second person to walk on the moon, adding to his record time on EVA that was not surpassed until Apollo 14. Aldrin's first words on the moon were, Beautiful view. Then, in response to Armstrong asking, Isn't it magnificent? Buzz responded, Magnificent desolation. Even though Neil was first to step on the moon, Buzz had another record. He was the first person to urinate while on the moon. Perhaps the most famous picture of an astronaut is a photo of Buzz on the moon. He is facing the camera, standing at the edge of a small crater. In his mirrored visor is a tiny image of the photographer, Neil Armstrong, the lunar lander, and the Sea of Tranquility. Here's Buzz telling the story of the picture. Neil was such an excellent photographer. <laughs> See, I, I, I was walking along like this, and he said, Hey, stop. So I stopped and looked at him, and he took the picture right away. And uh, uh, you can see parts, uh, well, you can identify that, that I was just still moving a little bit. Um, but people ask me, because it's so so well staged, and we call it the visor picture, yeah. because the reflection in the visor will show the landing craft, and it'll show the white-suited astronaut, Neil, that took the picture. And you can see my shadow uh, moving out. So we call that the, the visor picture. Uh, but people have asked me, why is that such a perfect, an iconic picture? And I've got three words. Location? Location? <laughs> Location. <laughs> There has been speculation about the extent of Aldrin's desire at the time to be the first astronaut to walk on the moon and its impact on his pre-flight, in-mission, and post-flight actions. According to different NASA accounts, the lunar module pilot, which in this case was Aldrin, had originally been proposed as the first to step onto the moon's surface in early versions of the EVA checklist. And when Aldrin became aware that this might be amended, he lobbied within NASA for the original procedure to be followed. A number of factors seem to have contributed to the final decision, including the physical positioning of the astronauts inside the compact lunar lander, which made it easier for Armstrong to be the first to exit the spacecraft. Also, Armstrong was the mission commander, and other senior astronauts who would command later Apollo missions and who might have ended up making the first landing in the event of a failure on Apollo 11 were not sympathetic to Aldrin's views. Apollo 11 command module pilot Michael Collins has commented that he thought Aldrin, quote, resents not being first on the moon more than he appreciates being second, end quote. After 47 years, 
Here's what Buzz had to say about the subject. Well, we certainly knew that the pressure was going to be on us to uh, be able to to do that. Uh, of course, to to all of us, the most important thing in that mission was to make a landing. Because if you don't make a landing, you can't go outside. You have to do it again, and then. But that's uh, not the way the uh, the press and the media see it. What's the most important thing is opening the hat, going down the ladder. Well, that was easy. But uh, there was some controversy because it was the first time that two people were going to go out. Previously, on all previous space walks, the commander was so occupied uh, training for the very complex things he had to do and make decisions. So generally the experiments were given to the pilot. NASA doesn't like the word co-pilot, but uh, the, the pilot always did the spacewalking, and, and as I did on Gemini 12, I was the pilot. Jim Lovell was the commander. Uh, but it uh, for for a number of reasons, it was decided that uh, I think the uh, customary thing uh, would be that the commander does the leading of his troops, and he should be the one symbolically to go down. And uh, and that was the way it was decided. The experiment still still should have been. Uh, uh, overseen by the, the junior person B. Uh, that isn't quite the way it worked out, because Neil was down there first, and then he began, I began following him around. And uh, that's, that worked out fine. Aldrin, a Presbyterian, was also the first person to hold a religious ceremony on the moon. After landing on the moon, he radioed to Earth, quote, I'd like to take this opportunity to ask every person listening in, whoever and wherever they may be, to pause for a moment and contemplate the events of the past few hours and to give thanks in his or her own way. Quote. He took communion on the surface of the moon, but he kept it secret because of a lawsuit brought by atheist activists Madeline Murray O'Hare over the reading of Genesis on Apollo 8. Aldrin, who was then a church elder, used a home communion kit given to him and recited words used by his pastor at Webster Presbyterian Church, the Reverend Dean Woodruff. The communion elements were the first food and liquid consumed on the moon. In the magazine Guidepost, Aldrin stated, quote, It was interesting to think that the very first liquid ever poured on the moon and the first food eaten there were communion elements. End quote. Later, Aldrin commented on the event, saying, quote, Perhaps if I had it to do over again, I would not choose to celebrate communion. Although it was a deeply meaningful experience for me, it was a Christian sacrament, and we had 
come to the moon in the name of all mankind, be they Christians, Jews, Muslims, agnostics, or atheists. But at the time, I could think of no better way to acknowledge the enormity of the Apollo 11 experience than by giving thanks to God. End quote. Mindful of the controversy caused by the Bible readings made by the Apollo 8 crew, NASA management had warned the Apollo 11 crew against making any explicit religious comments during the flight. However, in the final Apollo 11 TV broadcast during the return journey to Earth, Aldrin quoted from Psalm 8, quote, I've been reflecting the events of the past several days and a verse from the Psalms come to mind. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Quote. This particular quote seemed to have been accepted as a personal observation and did not create any controversy. Salutations from Marco Island, Florida, near the previous residence of Mike Collins. This is Michael Annis, your host. I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 204 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 11 Lunar Module Pilot Buzz Aldrin Part 1. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Make sure you sign up for the email list and connect with me on Twitter and Facebook. And you can do all that as well as download every episode of the podcast on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Today we salute my rocket emoji donor. These donors have donated for at least two years in a row and as a result received the rocket emoji next to their name on the donors list. Thanks, Rocket Emoji Donors, for your continued support. Had a few afterthoughts on this week's episode. First, I want to give some credit to the Science Museum in London, where most of those audio clips came from. It was a 2016 interview of Buzz, almost 47 years after Apollo 11. The Science Museum in London is obviously doing a wonderful job, and I plan to visit it if I ever make it over there. Well, we are not through with Buzz yet. I found so much info that it's going to take two episodes to cover it. I just hate cutting out the interesting stuff. So we'll finish Buzz up next week. The pictures that I mentioned during the episode are available at the homepage and on Twitter and Facebook. You should really take a look at Buzz's first space selfie. (laughs) Now... I do have some bonus content. This is Buzz uh, expressing what he feels when uh, someone tells him that the iPhone has more computing power than the computer aboard the Apollo command module. (laughs) There's no doubt that the technology has has come a long ways. 
Um, when, when somebody tells me that their iPhone has more computing power than our computer did in the spacecraft, I get a little resentful. <laughs> now, I know we didn't have a lot of storage, but my answer to them is, well, see, now I can take this and throw it up in the air. Now, can it take a star sighting and know exactly what its position is? And can it command a maneuver of rockets? Can it land? No, it's going to crash and break. <laughs> it can show a lot of pictures and a lot of names and things. It all depends on what you design something to do. Uh, As I mentioned, I posted some pictures and the audio for this episode on the webpage spacerockethistory.com. I hope you check that out. I was pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast over the past week. Graham Stockdale from the UK donated at the Mercury level and earned his coveted rocket emoji. Stephen L. donated at the Mercury level. Rasmus J. from Denmark donated at the Vostok level. Greg G. from Australia donated at the Apollo level. And since it is his fourth year donating, he earns the highly sought-after satellite emoji. Tyson F. donated at the Mercury level. Daniel D. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Greg R. pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. And Alan C. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Apollo level. Thank you, all my donors. I sincerely appreciate that. Last week, I told you we lost one Patreon, but we got him back and added three new to make the total number of Patreons at 108. And our overall number of donors for the year is 152, with a goal of reaching 300 donors by the end of the year. For those of you who have not donated yet in 2017, please keep in mind Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. If you are enjoying this content and can afford to help fund it, please consider donating. Keep in mind you don't have to donate much. You can make a one-time $10 donation at the Vostok level or sign up with Patreon for a $1 per month donation sort of like a voluntary subscription. Just go to the home page and click on one of the links on the top of the right side of the page. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page on the website spacerockethistory.com based on their donation level. I want to encourage everyone to share the podcast. Feel free to link the home page or a particular episode on all social media. And thanks to those who have already done so. I really appreciate it. This is the end of content for this episode. You are welcome to stay and listen to my off-topic thoughts if you want. Thanks for sticking around, folks. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Next week, we will continue the biography of Buzz Aldrin. In podcast news, once again, iTunes gave me problems accepting episode 203. So, I shrunk the RSS feed by reducing the number of episodes in the feed. iTunes then accepted the feed, but... We lost the first 10 episodes. I will continue to work with this problem, but I'm not that optimistic. 
Also remember, my website, spacerockethistory.com, has all of the episodes. You can get them all there. If you're missing any episodes, you can download them at the website. In personal news, last week I told you about my experience during the first two launches I saw on this trip. It was a Falcon 9 and a Delta IV. This week I would thought I would tell you about my third launch. This was a Falcon 9, and this was the historic first reusing of the first stage of a Falcon 9. It was launched at 6.27 p.m. March 30, 2017. My venue was the Saturn V complex at the Kennedy Space Center. This is what we did. I bought two tickets, one for me and one for Mrs. SRH, because <laughs> she wanted to see it too. And I bought those $20 tickets from the Space Center. In exchange, they took us by bus from the Visitor Center to the Saturn V Center. It takes about 15 minutes to get there, and there is an eagle's nest that you can look at as you drive by. There were several thousand people who had been bussed over to see the launch. The Saturn V Center is really aptly named because it has a Saturn V rocket displayed there. Outside the center, there are bleachers you can sit on. But we brought our chairs and staked out a piece of grass where we had an excellent view of pad 39A. I could not clearly see the rocket because the pad was blocking the view, but I was only three and a half miles away. In the four launches I have watched, going all the way back to Apollo 12, this was the best venue I have ever had. We arrived about an hour and a half before launch. There were many people there already. Some were even eating supper while they waited. There was a commentator speaking on the PA system with launch information and he would answer questions from the crowd. The time really passed quickly. The countdown went very well and at 6.27 p.m. the Falcon 9 lit up and I was watching through a cheap pair of binoculars because I'm kind of cheap. <laughs> and I could clearly see the rocket move over the top of the tower. It took about a minute to hear and feel the rocket's thrust. I believe they said the thrust on this one was around 1.7 million pounds, not even close to that of a Saturn V or shuttle, but I could still feel the vibrations and hear the roar. It was exciting. The rocket continued its path upward and we saw it go through max Q and throttle up. And gradually, the flame of the rocket moved beyond our view. All around us, the crowd was cheering. I don't think there was one face that was not smiling. Some of the crowd left, but we stuck around on the slim chance we might get to see the landing of the first stage. Sadly, we could not see it. But about eight minutes later, we were informed that it had landed safely, once again. Everything was going great. We finally made our way to the buses to take us back to the visitor center. On the way back, we saw the bald eagle flying near his nest. A wonderful treat for a fantastic day. Folks, if you ever get the chance to see one of these rockets launch, take it. There's nothing like being there. I can't wait to see a Falcon Heavy 
and the SLS. I just cannot wait for them to launch. I spent about six days visiting uh, Kennedy Space Center, and I want to start telling you about that next week because I had a great time. It is a fantastic center there, and they've changed a whole lot since I last visited. I think it was 2010 when I last visited, so things have changed quite a bit. Okay, that's about all I have for this week. I hope to have episode 205 up by next Thursday. So long for now.